America. We are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. This episode is powered by Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience and have more meaningful conversations, you're going to want to check out Poddex. Now, if you want to get 10% off your order right now, you can go to poddex.com and type in coupon code, what's the code? Larry21. Yes, that's the code. Check out poddex.com. Take your podcast to the next level. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. We dive into stories of true crime, from unsolved cold cases to historic kidnapping to gangsters and beyond. We are your source for true crime. We thank you for listening. The Christmas tragedy that fell on Osprey in 1959 was an unimaginable horror, one that by all rights deserved justice. Sadly, it never came. Maybe the killer was a relative who bore some grudge against the walkers or simply wished to engage in his carnal fantasies. Perhaps a secret lover had been spurned, or maybe it was a home invasion that for a second time ended in slaughter. In any case, a family was wiped out in the most terrible circumstances, and the killings remain yet another dark and unsolved stain in Florida's long and inglorious criminal history. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. I'm your host, Larry Elise. And on today's episode of Cold Case Friday, we dive into the Walker family murders. Were the murderous duo of Truman Capotes and Cold Blood responsible for the slaughter of a second family? Stay tuned and find out. But first, a word from our... Before we dive into today's episode, we'd like to remind you you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast. Now let's dive into today's cold case. December 20th, 1959 was seemingly an ordinary morning in Osprey, Florida, a town of small comprising of just a few thousand people, and residents enjoyed the relative peace that comes alongside that. Daniel McLeod rose at his ranch and began to set about his day. It was cold, but not expressly so, and he was headed to meet his friend and co-worker, Cliff Walker, to go hog hunting. He hooked up his horse trailer, loaded his horse, and set off in good spirits for the day ahead. Parking his truck outside the Walker family home on the 100,000 acres Palmer Ranch, McLeod will have noticed the darkness emanating from the house. It was quiet, which was odd as the family was known to rise early. McLeod knocked at the front door, getting increasingly louder as he became more alarmed at the lack of response. He had initially believed the family had simply slept in amused as his friend was also known to be a habitual early riser. After calling out and making further attempts to ascertain the problem, Daniel looked further around the property. He noted the family car was not in its usual position, and there were both a cut log and Christmas gifts laying on the porch. Airing through the windows, there was a very dim light on inside. Somebody was inside, but ignoring his calls. 
he realized something must be wrong in the house and took the decision to enter, cutting through the screen door. Even the worst fears of his imagination couldn't have prepared him for the carnage that greeted him. The entire Walker family was dead, all murdered, including the children. There were still gifts underneath the Christmas tree. Cliff, 25, lived with his wife, Christine, 24, and their two young children, Jimmy, 3, and Debbie, 1. The family was young and growing and looks said to be pillars of the community for many years to come. However, now Christine laid a pool of blood at the entrance to the living room. Cliff and Jimmy were slumped in the corner, and upstairs, Debbie lay in a blood-filled bath. McLeod hastily ran from the house and called the police. Working at the scene, police began to search the home for evidence, and soon discovered that the that items were missing. Some of them seemed quite bizarre. Christine's high school majorette uniform was gone, as was Cliff's pocket knife. However, most unusually, the couple's marriage license had been stolen, leading some to suspect that perhaps an old flame of Christine's had come to carry out an act of terrible revenge on the young husband and wife. Alongside the items missing, there was also a significant amount of evidence left at the scene by the culprit. There was a bloody and discarded cowboy boot, a cellophane strip from a cigarette wrapper, and a fingerprint on the bathtub faucet. Reconstructing events, police ascertained that the family had been out running errands and believed that Christine arrived home first, around 4 p.m. on Saturday, December 19th. Entering, she wasn't attacked straight away and had enough time to store the groceries before she was ambushed by the assailant or assailants. Whether they were already in the house or Christine let them in, is unknown for sure, but it seems likely the reason the family car was in a different location is that somebody else had parked in the family spot. This didn't alarm Christine, and logically the occupant of that car was then known to her, letting them in before being attacked. She fought viciously, using her high-heeled shoes and staining them with blood, even making it out of the house before being dragged back inside. Then she was taken to Jimmy's bedroom and raped on the bed before being shot with a twenty-two firearm. Christine was likely still struggling at this point as the first bullet barely grazed her. The second one didn't miss. Not long afterward, Cliff also returned home with Jimmy and Debbie. Cliff was shot in the face immediately, followed by Jimmy, the young boy eating a lollipop he'd been bought as a treat. But Jimmy didn't die. Mortally wounded, he crawled to his dead father, seeking his protection. The killer put two more bullets in the back of the child's skull. Now the killer turned to Debbie and shot her too. It seems likely that Debbie also somehow survived. Out of ammunition, the killer took the baby to the bathroom and drowned her in the bathtub. Whether the one-year-old's death came from the balloon or the water was never ascertained. It seems also almost sure that there was more than one attacker with forensic evidence discovering a dark colored hair in the bathroom and a long blonde hair inside Christine Walker's dress. Initial suspects in the, in the case included Daniel McLeod himself, a local by the name of Wilbur Tooker, and a cousin of Cliff by the name of Elbert Walker. McLeod passed a polygraph and was quickly eliminated in any case. Meanwhile, Tooker was seen as a local pervert, having tried to kiss Christine in the past and, and regularly making indecent propositions. Cliff had threatened to kill him, but he had a watertight alibi for the time of the murders. Elbert, on the other hand, would be on the police radar for some time. Described as wild, he was violent and boisterous when drunk many believing him to be mentally unwell. Elbert had also previously made advances towards Christine and family members thought the grief shown was fake. The suspect feigning twice at the funeral. 
he passed a polygraph, and even though there was significant controversy over the validity of early tests in 2006, Elbert was eliminated through DNA. However, the best suspect at the time was possibly Curtis McCall, a man described as a troublemaker with a history of violence. Local gossip was that McCall was engaged in an affair with Christine Walker, and he was known to own a 22 caliber gun. Brought in for questioning, McCall denied having any romantic interest in Christine and evasively said he had sold the weapon not long ago. McCall underwent three separate polygraph tests, and during each one, the suspect was so nervous that they all ended inconclusively. Yet the test showed that he was highly likely lying when asked if he'd withheld information. Just a few months after the massacre, bloody clothing from the Walker home was uncovered in a shed not far away. The items, including shirts, a blouse, and pants, belonged to Cliff and Christine, were all soaked. Police theorized that they had been grabbed and used to wipe the blood off the killer or killers. The discovery was interesting, as it would be unlikely that a stranger to the area would know the shed. In all, hundreds of suspects were interviewed and given polygraphs. The leads went nowhere, and the case was soon going cold. Until police believed they had a break in 1962, when serial killer Emmett Monroe Spencer claimed responsibility. Yet Spencer was known was a known pathological liar, and his claims were soon dismissed as a false confession by Soda County Sheriff Ross Boyer. However, it's possible that the police already had the killers in custody. In the early hours of November 15, 1959, Perry Smith and Richard Hitchcock, Hit, or Hickok, excuse me, entered the Clutter family home in Holcomb, Kansas. Smith and Hickok had recently been released from the Kansas State Penitentiary. Hickok's former cellmate had worked for the Clutters, telling him that the father, Herb, kept a large amount of cash on the premises. He soon concocted a plan to rob the family safe and flee to Mexico, enlisting Smith, who had also been his cellmate. The duo entered the home and through an unlocked back door in search for the safe, the family remaining asleep. They didn't find it. Herb, in reality, did all his business by check, and there was no safe. Agreed, the two robbers woke the family. Herb, 48, his wife, Bonnie, 45, their two, ne- two teenage children, Nancy, 16, and Kenyon, 15. All four were bound and gagged as the search continued. They found nothing. Determined not to leave any witnesses, Smith cut Herb Clutter's throat and then shot him. One by one, Kenyon, Nancy, and Bonnie were executed with a shotgun blast to the head. Smith stopped his friend from raping Nancy first, but was likely responsible for pulling the trigger on all four killings. The pair got away with a radio, a set of binoculars, and less than $50. While the killers were selling large, legendary writer Truman Capote learned of the killings and decided to write about the slaughter. Traveling to Kansas alongside childhood friend Harper Lee, author of To Kill a Mockingbird. Together, they interviewed hundreds of locals and the investigators working on the case. The notes for the planned book ran to 8,000 pages. The culprits were eventually arrested six weeks after the killings in Las Vegas and ultimately executed by hanging on April 14, 1965. The year afterward, Capote published the book. It would be arguably the most significant trigger crime work of all time in cold blood. However, while both Smith and Hickok would be dead and buried by the time Capote released his book, they were still very much at large. On December 19, 1959, indeed, the Walker family killings are given several pages in In Cold Blood, the author dismissing any connection. However, in 2012, 
the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office once again began to look into a possible link, having originally considered them suspects as early as 1960, around the time of the arrest. The pair were among the many suspects given a polygraph, which they both passed, being dismissed from the inquiry. Capote had insisted that the pair had an alibi for the time of the killings. Still, Kansas and Florida investigators have contended that there are flaws in the account, with some witnesses standing against the alibi. After the slaughter at the Clutter family farm, the duo had stolen a car and began to make their way to Florida, headed for Miami. They were seen a dozen times on the way. Arriving in Miami Beach, the pair was located just four hours away from the Walker family home and checked out of their motel the morning of the killings. When they were arrested, they had a pocket knife similar to the one described as missing from Cliff Walker's body. At the time of the murders, the Walkers had been thinking about buying a 1956 Chevrolet Bel Air, and this was the same car that Smith and Hickok had stolen back in Kansas, using it during their flight across the country. Knowing they were seen throughout the state looking for work, investigators have theorized that the duo bumped into the Walker family and got talking or simply contacted them either way, under the pretense that they were planning on selling the vehicle. Arriving at the house when Christine was alone, she wouldn't have suspected their real intention. The same day, they were positively identified at a department store just a few miles away. One of them had a scratched face. There have been minor developments in the case in the years since the San Juan Colt. For example, in 94, a woman called the sheriff's office and claimed to be a bartender in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. She said one of her regular customers had got drunk at the bar one night and began crying, saying that he had killed some people in Osprey, Florida. When he was a young man and mentioned the name Walker, she believed he did occasional work around town and was a gun enthusiast. The bartender never called again. In December 2012, it was announced that Smith and Hickok's bodies would be exhumed to match their DNA to semen samples taken from Christine back in 1959. The case wasn't a priority, and it would be and it would be August of 2013 before the results came in. They were inconclusive. Only partial DNA had been retrieved, and any conclusions were therefore uncertain. There is ample circumstantial evidence to suggest that the pair may have been responsible for the Walker family murders. They were in the area at the time, and had already committed one atrocity. Both killings involved a, human, or a home invasion, and both involved the occupants being executed with a firearm. Both had relatively minor items stolen, However, the Clutter family killing resulted from false information with the home deliberately targeted in the belief it contained significant cash. That motive has to be discounted in the Walker family case. Equally, Smith prevented Hickok from carrying out a rape at the Clutter farm, whereas Christine was assaulted before execution. A blonde hair was found in Christine's dress, and neither Smith nor Hickok were blonde. Smith and Hickok took cash at the first crime scene and too easy to carry and simple upon items in a radio and binoculars. At the second, killers took personal things related to Christine, namely her high school majorette uniform and marriage license. The taking of these items from the crime scene is suggestive that the killings were directly targeting Christine and the family rather than the tra tragic results of a home invasion. While police officially believe that Smith and Hickok remain the best suspects in the cold case, it's worth noting that the marriage license was eventually returned to the family when a relative included it in items that were given to Cliff Walker's niece. The Christmas tragedy that fell on Osprey in 1959 was unimaginable. Or it was unimaginable horror, I should say, and one that by all rights deserved justice. Sadly, it never came. 
Maybe the killer was a relative who bore some grudge against the walkers or simply wished to engage in his carnal fantasies. Perhaps the secret lover had been spurned, or maybe it was a home invasion. For a second time, ended in a slaughter. In any case, family was wiped out in the most terrible circumstance. Their killings remain yet another dark and unsolved stain in Florida's long and inglorious criminal history. Let us know your thoughts on this case in the comment section below. Who do you think did it? Let us know your theories. And as always, if we got something wrong or missed something, leave it in the comments section below. As always, give us a thumbs up if you like our video. Subscribe to the channel. And if you want to support the channel, you can buy us a copy at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNS. Your support helps the channel grow, uh, upgrade our equipment, bring in new hosts, be able to pay them, and one day take this show on the road. And as always, thank you so much for watching and listening. We will... Thanks again for watching. And if you want to see more content of Cold from Cold Case Friday, check right here. And for other videos of true crime, check right here. And as always, we will see you next time. Take care. You have been listening to the True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast. Thank you for listening. You can follow us on Facebook at True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast and on Twitter at True Crime NS. And follow us on Instagram at True Crime Never Sleeps. Thanks for watching. If you want to support the show, Buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash TCNN or become a patron at patreon.com slash true crime never sleeps. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.